This is our context. We're all apologists now because the conflict is between two contradictory sets of religious commitments, and that changes the game. And I think it's helpful as we look at Aristides to think in terms of the fact he was talking about a religious conflict, the Roman civic religion and Christianity. And we sometimes think we aren't in a religious conflict. But the fact is, all of these things that we're seeing happen, they are liturgical in nature. That is to say, there is a liturgy of clothing, of words that you say and words that you don't say, of things, of phrases that are repeated. All of these things, it is deeply religious and liturgical. And the reason that people are so upset when you don't follow the liturgy, so to speak, is because they have, whether they recognize it or not, have given it a religious power and significance. Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Welcome to this episode of the Apologetics Podcast. What we're talking about today is how we are all apologists now. Yep, but before talking about how we are all apologists now, we get to talk about how we are also Raiders of Church History. That's right, Indiana, Jones, and the Raiders of Church History. That's right, folks, this is the time when we dig into the annals of history, which for me is really just the interwebs, and find artifacts or relics, pieces of Christian history that may be real, may be less real. Who knows? And we put them uh, to a battle with one another. So since I got to introduce the segment, Timothy, you begin the battle. So what I am bringing into the battle today is a rope, a rope that was used by a monk to hold his robes together, and it is the rope of St. Francis of Assisi. That's right, St. Francis of Assisi, who, by the way, as we've talked about before, did not say 
preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. If he had said it, he would still have been wrong, but we're not talking about that today, but just stop attributing that to St. Francis of Assisi. But something that St. Francis of Assisi did apparently do is use a rope to secure his robes, and we need to talk about that story so people understand this. If you don't know, St. Francis of Assisi, was his father was a wealthy cloth merchant, and Francis became a soldier. He was captured. He was imprisoned later. All these things happened to St. Francis. When he's released from prison, he is riding through town sometime after he's released from prison. He sees a leper, and his face was disfigured, and so disfigured that Francis turned away from him. But then St. Francis, and uh, the stories vary as to what really happens in this, but at some level, his heart is moved, and he decides to give away all of the wealth that his father has lavished upon him and to become a monk. And his father doesn't want him to do so, and his father imprisons him, sends him to a bishop, and St. Francis, according to stories that, unlike many of the stories, this one has at least some good historical foundation. Many of the stories don't, but this one has at least some, that he apparently took off his clothes in front of the bishop, and he went and he found clothing, rough clothing, wrapped himself in it, and he put a rope around his waist, and he became a monk, and he dedicated his life to serving others, and he divested himself of all of the wealth that he had so that he could serve others. And he tied this rope around his waist, and in time, probably not with St. Francis, but in time, the Franciscan order of monks, they tie three knots in their rope around their waist, and those three knots represent poverty, chastity, and obedience, which are these foundational cornerstones of the Franciscan order. And so whatever you bring, I have a rope, and I will do something with the rope to whatever you bring into battle, the rope, but not just any rope, the rope of St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah, that's pretty strong. It is really fascinating. As an aside, the stories, the the biographies of medieval monks and how many of them came to be monks and and the struggles often being relational struggles with their family to become monks are just really fascinating and wild. And a lot of them feel very much the same in many respects. But listen, that's gonna be a tough one to beat. I'm not gonna lie, feel like I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel on this one. But I just found this one so interesting that just felt like I had to bring it. And so today I bring to you the fairy flag, a strange relic of the MacLeod clan in Scotland. So I'm just going to read some print for you, right? A relic is not necessarily a religious item. Some of them can just be important heirlooms, artifacts with some lengthy heritage and history. And so one of those type of items is the so-called fairy flag, a venerated, very old heirloom of the chiefs of the Scottish clan MacLeod. As a member of the MacDonald clan of the Highlands Scotland clan, this just warms the cockles of my heart. So the fairy flag is made of silk, very old. It originated somewhere in the Far East. Being very old, now it's kind of super torn and tattered and covered with tiny red elf spots. I don't know what that means. I don't know what elf spots <laughs> means, but that's part of the description. Shrouded in mystery, this relic has attained legendary status. It's said to have magical properties, plenty of healing powers, even though its origins are somewhat 
mysterious. The legends state that the McLeod Chiefs were presented with the flag by fairy folk. So we're taking a silk banner and hitting it with a rope or tying it with a rope or or something like that with this is what we're doing at this point. I don't know. This seems like a draw. I think you put a rope and a flag into battle against each other. This yeah. is going to be a pretty boring battle. <laughs> it is going to be pretty boring. Especially, I mean, yeah. I mean, especially we're talking about like an old beat up silk flag, like probably isn't going to last long, but it was Scottish. And I haven't run into many Scottish things in my searches for artifacts and relics. So I just kind of had to go with it. I had elf spots once, but then the doctor gave me something. I don't don't know about the elf spots. Just just cut myself a a good antibiotic and just cleared that right up. Timothy, today we're basing a discussion on a recent faculty address that you gave. And actually, for our audience, the material that you gave, that you presented in the in the faculty address, wasn't even new to that. This is something that had been written and presented in different forms and in other places. I mean, this is something you've been thinking about for a while. But before we get there, why don't you tell people, give people a description of this exciting thing that is a faculty address? Well, the faculty address, first off, is not where you send me mail. That has nothing to do. It's not 2825 Lexington Road, Louisville, Kentucky. It's not the faculty address. Well, I mean, I mean that te- is your <laughs> faculty address. <laughs> it technically is my faculty address. But that is not what we're talking about here. A faculty address is something you give once in a lifetime of scholarship. And in essence, you give what you consider to be some background from your research about your field of study, as well as where the future is for your field of study. And you're thinking about situating your field of study in relation to all the other fields of study that are represented among and by the faculty. And so you're trying to situate it in that. The model I really took for this, in some sense, was one from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis gave a faculty address. It's different from what we do at Southern Seminary. His faculty address was given at the inauguration of a chair at Cambridge University, the chair that he was going to be teaching this again, not a literal chair, just as it's not a literal address, but it is a a representative position at Cambridge University. But he gave one called De Descriptione Temporum, which is a description of the times. And it's just a brilliant faculty address. And so I read that several times because I really wanted to think about what is the best example I can think of of a faculty address. And this one by C.S. Lewis is the best. It is brilliant. It is where he is basically saying in his particular field of study of medieval and Renaissance literature that basically he is one of the few people left who is reading it as if he is a native of the land from which it comes. And it's a beautiful faculty address in which he situates his field of medieval and Renaissance literature in relation to all the other fields of the university. And so I really tried to think in terms of that. How can I situate the field of apologetics in relation to all the others, thinking about how it relates to them and what I want other people, how I want them to view apologetics from their different fields of study. And so I entitled it, Brothers and Sisters, We Are All Apologists Now. And what I wanted to contend for in that is that 
the state of affairs in the world and in the culture, especially Western culture, has shifted in such a way that every person who is living as a Christian is going to have to be an apologist at some level. And that was what I wanted to express to them, to the faculty of all of us are doing apologetics together. That apologetics, it's no longer something that's limited to biblical scholars. It's something that is for all of us now. And I got that phrase from Os Guinness from his book, Fool's Talk is the name of the book, an excellent book called Fool's Talk by Os Guinness. This notion, we are all apologists now. So that was the name of the address. That was the purpose of the address is to situate my field of study of apologetics in relation to the other disciplines represented at Boyce College and at Southern Seminary. So your address, you told us the purpose and kind of a general overview. What was the main point you were trying to drive home in your time? So basically what I wanted to express in this is that the world and the culture has changed around us in such a way that all of us are apologists, but not only that, we haven't yet caught up with that. <laughs> we haven't yet caught up with the fact that the world has changed. And some of us, many people, I think, are either thinking apologetics is optional or they're thinking that apologetics, they're doing it in a way that is maybe 20 years back, 30 years back, 40 years back from where we actually are. And so been making the basic point that it's no longer a task that's limited to biblical scholars, but that pursuing a Christian way of life will inevitably, for all of us today, require providing a defense of this way of being in the world. Just being a Christian in the world is going to require some measure of apologetics. And that's a huge change because for centuries, we've lived in a world in which Christianity, even if people rejected it, they assumed it was at least good for the world. And that's the change that's happened. The change is that now Christianity is not necessarily perceived to be good for the world. The assumption is not that Christianity is good for the world, but often that Christianity is very bad for the world, or at least that Christianity is not good for the social order. And as long as the goodness of Christianity was assumed, it was conceivable for Christian apologetics to stay restricted into a small space and certain people who were the apologists. But when Christianity is kind of not perceived to be good for the world, just living as a Christian in the world is going to require us to do apologetics at some level. And so kind of the point I made is that apologetics at one time was about defending miracles that these miracles happened, that Christianity was assumed to be good, but the miracles were not necessarily believable. So it was about defending the miracles. And then as the world shifted in the 1800s, particularly, I think 1700s, 1800s, that the metaphysical assumptions changed, the assumptions about the first principles, the things you can't really see that you believe, the metaphysical assumptions of how we think about the world, those changed. And so what had to be defended was a Christian way of thinking and now, so it went from miracles to metaphysics, and now it's whether Christianity is even good. So what we have to defend is a Christian way of being. So we've gone from, we've got to defend the miracles, we've got to defend a Christian way of thinking, to now we just have to defend a Christian way of being. And so it's gone from miracles to metaphysics to morals. And when that happens, then in that instance, then we're all apologists at that point. I was hoping as a good Baptist 
preacher you were going to alliterate and uh, just making sure you got to that morals way to go. Yeah. So when you are presenting this, and I know you've now done so in so far only academic spaces, right? I mean, faculty address, parts of this have been in conference papers and whatnot. This hasn't turned into a Sunday sermon yet or something that you're saying at churches yet, although, I mean, we know that that's coming. First of all, what you're not saying is that the culture is such that all of us are apologists in the sense that we're all witnesses by the way that we live. You're not saying only that, number one. We have had that talk. that's always been true. Always been true. Always been true. We have talked about how that was an emphasis of the early church and kind of got lost in the middle of kind of this evidential argumentative apologetic method, quote unquote, but that the closer we move towards a post-Christian culture society, the closer we're moving back to this being more in the same situation as the early church and their apologetics, which is a big part of that is an apologetics of ethics and living. And But what you're saying is that's always been true. And the more post-Christian, more secular a society becomes, the more countercultural your way of being just is. And so the more necessary, the more opportunity, the more you are going to be confronted in some sense by the Christian way of being. So the more you are going to have to make some type of defense for why your faith is not immoral, why you're not a bigot or a there's a whole number of terms that Christians might be called. Is that in layman's terms, essentially what we're saying here? Exactly. It's that just being a Christian in the world is going to press against the cultural assumptions to enough of a degree that there's going to have to be some defense made. People will question, why are you being this way in the world? And it will raise doubts in their mind about the very goodness of Christian faith, of the very goodness of Christianity. So just to give one example of this, just a real life example from 2019, there's a British medical doctor, his name was David Macareth, and he lost his job because he declined to use pronouns that conflicted with an individual's birth gender. That was something that for him, as for us, is a religious issue, and he would not use those terminologies. And when he appealed this to a tribunal, he lost his case because and this is what becomes fascinating in this, in the words of the tribunal, his belief in Genesis 127 was incompatible with human dignity. Now, pause and think about that for a second. His belief in Genesis 127, that humanity is created male and female by God in the image of God, is incompatible with human dignity. Now, that's ridiculous at one level. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to just note that the entire Western history of jurisprudence that values human dignity traces back to a belief in Genesis 127. (laughs) It traces back to that. And yet he is now being told that your belief in Genesis 127 is incompatible. This is the tribunal's words, incompatible with human dignity. 
And as one writer says, to say that is like insisting that seeds are incompatible with flowers or grain is incompatible with bread. It's ridiculous because the very foundation of our belief in human dignity in Western culture is grounded in a belief in Genesis 127. But what's so clear in this instance and in others we could look at similar to this is that the public practice of Christianity is no longer presumed to be good for the social order. To pursue a a Christian way of life is in some sense perceived as something that stigmatizes innocent people, that stands in opposition to human dignity. And all this just has massive implications for apologetics because, as I said earlier, One might say that the necessary scope of apologetics has moved from miracles to metaphysics to now the very morality of Christianity. That's what is happening around us, and that's why we are all apologists now. Yeah. At that point in the Macarth example, when you make a statement that Genesis 127 is incompatible with human dignity, you have changed the definition of dignity. You mean something else by it. And this is kind of the point, not to be the guy that throws books at everything and says, hey, go read this, go read this. Although I I find myself doing it quite a bit. This is a big point that Carl Truman is making in his book, Rise and Triumph of, of the Modern Self, or his condensed version, which is still very helpful, Strange New World, that essentially he is tracing at least one strain of how the definition of the self has changed over the last 400 years. And this, this example, Timothy, is a direct result of that. I watched the address, and early on, you give an example that for me, as a former youth minister, and actually someone who's had like a couple of different stints over time, you gave an example of how you recently have seen this reality the change in the foundational assumptions and views of the church, the Christian, even the Christian culture of folks in the church. And you told the story from getting back into youth ministry. Could you tell that story here? It was just so rattled me. It wasn't something, I told you this earlier, it wasn't something, you weren't saying something new to me, but the contrast that you put between young Timothy in youth ministry and old man Timothy stepping back in a few months ago was really jarring and I thought very helpful. So let's look back to when I did first work in student ministry. So back when I first worked in student ministry was like in, in the, the 1990s. 60s? Oh, in the 90s. Okay. <laughs> it's the just 90s. It's the 90s. So I, I was just going through a list of things that hadn't happened yet at that point. Oh, my goodness. Britney Spears had not yet released Baby One More Time. Episode one of Star Wars had not been inflicted on us yet. George <laughs> Lucas had still not unleashed Jar Jar Binks on all oh. of us. That hadn't happened yet. The Matrix hadn't happened yet. Keanu Reeves had never plugged into the Matrix. So let's go back to the 1990s before all of those things. And during that time, students didn't struggle with their faith typically until the first year or two of college. They just didn't. They weren't wrestling with their faith in high school. There's other things they were wrestling with, but it wasn't with the truthfulness of their faith. And when they did doubt their faith in that first year or two of college, they were asking questions that I was equipped to answer, I felt like. Are the scriptures true? And can you tell me 
why the scriptures are true and how I can know that. They were talking about the plausibility of miracles and creation and evolution. Those were all the things they were wrestling with. And if they saw an alternative to Christian faith, it was agnosticism or atheism was what they were thinking about. It's this or this. They're not thinking anything between those. And they didn't always do what was right. But they and their parents assumed that Christian ethics were good and that Christian faith makes the world a better place. Those were just the assumptions going on in the 1990s. So a few years ago, 2019, I returned to student and family ministry for a few months in a temporary role, and I discovered that we're now looking at a totally different set of challenges and doubts. Because what I was finding over and over is that doubts about Christian morals, they preceded any questions about Christian miracles. And I told about one young woman in particular that just sort of crystallized all of this for me. And she she said that she found the historical evidence for the resurrection to be compelling Now, in the 1990s, if somebody told me that, boom, we were ready to close the deal at that point. We were ready at that point to say, all right, let's pray together, and I'm going to start you toward classes so you can get prepared for baptism. I mean, that's what's happening when somebody says, I find the historical evidence for the resurrection to be compelling. And yet, she went on from that point and let me know that she was willing to reject Christianity She was willing to reject the Bible unless Christianity could accommodate her perception, her conception of herself as bisexual, and she was even saying she's perhaps transgender at this point. And she was willing to reject something which she admitted was evidenced well in history if it couldn't accommodate her self-conception of herself as bisexual and perhaps transgender. And for her, in her mind, if Christians withheld affirmation of her as bisexual, as transgender, if Christians withheld that, that was disregarding her dignity, it was devaluing her psychological well-being, and according to her, what we might call, Philip Reef calls, an analytic attitude, evidence for the Christian faith was irrelevant unless the Christian faith could be conformed to her perceptions of what's good. I never envisioned that in the 1990s. I never envisioned that this would ever happen. Somebody accepting the central miracle of the Christian faith, yet rejecting the faith on the basis of perceived immorality of the faith. And for her and for many, many others like her, These moral doubts about Christianity have taken precedence over any challenge related to miracles or to metaphysics. And as I think about this, I did not include this in the faculty address because that is a formal event. And I don't know that you should quote Lady Gaga in a formal seminary event. I don't know. So I didn't. But I go back in my mind to, I think it was 2011, Lady Gaga's song, Born This Way. And I think that was a threshold moment in culture. It didn't cause it, but it reflected it. It reflected the shift in culture where she's declaring, I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistake. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. 
Don't be a drag, just be a queen. Whether you're broke or evergreen, your black, white, beige, chola descent. You're Lebanese, you're Orient. Whether life disabilities left you outcast, for leader teased. Rejoice and love yourself today, cause baby, you were born this no way. No gay, straight or bi, lesbian, transgender life. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive. No matter black, white, or beige, chola This notion that whatever you are sexually, it is you were just born this way and everybody ought to affirm that. It also does the thing that's happening a lot, which is connecting people's sexual self-identity with their ethnicity as if those two are the same thing. And that therefore, if we believe in a multi-ethnic life, if we believe in affirming people in terms of who they are ethnically and culturally, then therefore we ought to affirm who they say they are or think they are sexually. That's a whole different set of issues. But you see that in that song, you see all these things where those they're bundling these things together as if they're the same thing when they actually are aren't the same thing. You see that in this song, but that type of an attitude is precisely what this young woman had in her mind. I am this way. If I am this way, then God must want me to be this way and must have made me this way. And therefore, if you don't accept me this way and don't affirm me this way, don't affirm that I'm right about my self-conception, then you must not really care about my dignity or my well-being. That is what is being communicated there. And that was the challenge I bumped into over and over in those months in that temporary role in youth ministry in 2019. And as we talked about earlier, and we've hinted at this a few times on different episodes of the podcast, is that part of the problem here is that our world has in some sense lost any recognition or acknowledgement that the world as it is, is abnormal, that the world as it is, is twisted and broken. The way it is must be the way it is and must be normal. And therefore it is and must be affirmed as good. And this, I mean, Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, Dutch reformed theologian is so helpful in that when he talks about how we have two fundamentally different starting points. Either we see the world as it is, as normal, that in its broken fallen state, as we see it right now, that's normal. Or we admit that it's abnormal and that the normal or natural world has been made unnatural and abnormal by sin. Sin has made the world abnormal and unnatural. And therefore, we sometimes look at things and say that is a distortion or a privation of something that is good and beautiful. The way it is isn't necessarily normal or natural. That simply because something is this way doesn't mean it ought to be affirmed this way. And our world has completely lost track of that, utterly and completely lost track of that type of notion. I think there may be folks listening right now that were either really jarred by or or just haven't gotten to slow down and consider the story you just told that someone said to you, essentially, I believe the resurrection, or I could easily believe the resurrection, which means I could also easily believe all that Jesus claims about himself and much of what the New Testament says about him. And yet, 
still choose, though I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, to not surrender to the Son of God, the co-creator of the universe, because apparently to follow him means all of these things, which I can't get on board with. And we won't get deep into this. I think this will be a whole nother episode at some point, but just the various few different readings that I've been doing over the year that I continue to bump up against the thought of Charles Taylor, Philip Reef, who you mentioned. I'm reading Andrew Root right now, which interacts with those guys and others a lot. So I'm sitting here and you tell that story and, and I'm just like, that just boggles my mind. And I don't know how it landed with the faculty members, the audience that heard it that day. But what it is, is just an affirmation of what Charles Taylor, Philip Reef, a lot of these guys are saying where the worldview, the basic assumptions and way of thinking about the world and what it is and the answers to the fundamental questions, that is shifted to something else. And a lot of these guys will come up with their categories, which doesn't matter much right now. But essentially, they're saying, hey, we are in something new. And a big problem with the church, with Christianity, is that the majority of its members are still operating from an old view. And they're thinking from that old view, that old worldview. They are trying to minister to others who are in a totally different mindset, different foundational assumptions. They're trying to do church from this old worldview and programs and curricula. They are, as you said earlier, when we're having this discussion, they think that they're swimming upstream in today's culture, but the reality is they're, they're in a whole different body of water. And I'm just not sure enough of us are seeing that. And it's, it's a story like that that you tell that if that doesn't jar someone and wake them up to our current reality, then I'm not sure what will. So I think one of the things we have to do in apologetics is we have to move beyond merely, and hear that word merely, we have to be on, move beyond merely appealing to the evidence for the reality of miracles and the reliability of scripture. Now, we should still be being able to present those evidences. Those evidences still matter. And evidence for the resurrection should remain central in our apologetics. We need to get people to the resurrection of Jesus. So it's not saying those evidences don't matter. It's just recognizing we may have to get to those evidences by starting in a very different place than we did before. And that's what I'm trying to help people to see is that your pathway to get to the evidences, the evidences are still important, but your pathway to get to them is going to start in a different place than it did at one point in the past. It cannot be an immediate just giving people the evidence. To get to that, you're going to have to be able to defend the goodness of Christianity before you get to the evidence for Christianity, that at least getting people to entertain at least the possibility 
that Christianity might be something that isn't bad for the world. We've not had to deal with that for a long time, that question of that. People have assumed Christianity is good for the world for so many centuries, and yet now we have to articulate that Christianity is not bad for the world. That has to be part of what we're doing on the way to particular evidences, and that's going to change the way we present those evidences as well. So where are helpful places that we can point folks to? Where can Christians, where can our listeners go to to begin understanding approaches or being equipped for apologetics that fits this context, the context where the social good, the goodness of Christianity itself, the morality of Christianity is in doubt? Well, I think there's several places we can go, and most of them are a long time ago. Not in a galaxy far, far away, but they are a long time ago. And one of those is Augustine, for example. But our friends Josh Shatro, Mark Allen, they're doing a great job with drawing together Augustinian apologetics. And so I've kind of taken a different angle, taken a different direction on this. And we mentioned already Carl Truman's excellent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And there's something he says toward the end of that book that is really important. And he doesn't explore this any further. And so what I want to do is explore this further. And it is, he says that the closest analogy to our current situation in which the very goodness of Christianity is in doubt, the closest analogy to that is the second century AD, when the church was a marginalized sect within a dominant pluralistic society under suspicion, not because of miraculous claims, not because her dogmas of the church were were somehow supernatural. Of course they were, but that's not what was putting the church under suspicion. It was rather that Christianity was accused of all sorts of immoral things. Now, there's several different immoral things that Christianity was accused of. There was cannibalism and incest and things like that that were false accusations. But I want us to think about one of those different accusations was atheism, that they refused to participate in the order of the civic gods of Rome. And that made Christianity suspect in many people's minds. And so I want us to look back at the second century is one of the places I want us to look back at. And one of the ways I, I express this often is talking about when you're on an airplane, sometimes they will say something to the effect of the exit door you're looking for may be behind you. And we often want to think that where we got to go is in front of us. And so we've got some philosophers and some theologians that are saying we're going to leave things behind and move forward into the future and find some new way to do things. But sometimes the exit door you're looking for may be behind you. You need to look to the past to be able to find out the direction you need to go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Ah. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? And I think the second century gives us this because pursuing a Christian way of life in the second century required Christians to just provide a defense of their very way of being in the world. And I think Carl Truman's right that that's the closest analogy to our present day. And so what I've tried to do is what Carl Truman stop short of doing. He says it's beyond the scope of his research and to say, okay, it's beyond the scope of your research, but it is precisely in the scope of the research I want to do. And that is to ask ourselves the question of 
what can we learn from second century apologetics? And a lot of my focus has been on the apologetics of a guy named Aristides of Athens. And Aristides was a second century Athenian philosopher and to really explore what he has to say about apologetics. So I want you to tell us about Aristides in a second. I feel like I, for the longest time, because I know you've been interested in a while and, and I also heard his name from other folks, you know, several years ago, I guess I was always under the impression that we don't have a bunch from Aristides. Number one, am I misunderstanding that? Do we have more of his work than I was previously aware of? And then second part of that is just why Aristides? What is it about him that has kind of made him the primary focus of this part of your research? So Aristides, he is second century, very little known about him, just a little bit in Eusebius, who was a church historian in the fourth century, and lets us know that he was an Athenian philosopher. And uh, we've got a little bit about him in Jerome, the writings of Jerome, who calls him a most eloquent Athenian philosopher, and specifically said that he retained his philosopher's habit of life, his philosopher's garb, even after he becomes a follower of Jesus. And I think very little has been done comparatively with Aristides, in part because his writings survive in a somewhat fragmentary form. And there's a lot of questions about that, you know, very well, that if I could start talking about textual criticism of Aristides, we could talk for a long time and nobody would listen. So we're not going to talk about that. But uh, let's just say that his the text of his work cannot be established with certainty any earlier than about the fourth century. So there's some question about it. But enough of it survives for us to have this very, I think just this very fascinating snapshot into a moment in the second century when he is trying to argue for people to see Christian faith as something good for the social order. And it survives in, there's 16 brief little chapters. It doesn't take you very long to read the text of Aristides of Athens, his apology. But he writes this apology such that he is trying to articulate to the people of his day, the cultured people of his day, probably people interested in philosophy in his day. He's trying to articulate to them that Christianity is indeed good for the world. That's what he's trying to argue. And he does it in a really fascinating, really unique way in which he says, look, there's four types of people in the world. There's barbarians, Greeks, Jews, and Christians. And so he says that there's a God. We know from creation, it's interesting, he makes sort of a almost classical argument for the existence of God based on motion and on beauty. So he says, because of the motion in the world, there has to be something that put it into motion. There has to be a prime mover. And the world's too beautiful for there not to be some sort of a benevolent God, a God who needs nothing but all things need him. There has to be some kind of a God. So he says there's four types of people in the world, barbarians, Greeks, Jews, and Christians. And he says, which of those religions fits best with a God who needs nothing, but all things need him. So he put things into motion to begin with, but nothing put him into motion. And who's created a beautiful world. Which of these four religious faiths, we would say in our terms, these ways of life, these types of people in the world, which of these four is a way of life that actually is congruent with, that actually fits with 
a God who needs nothing and who would create a beautiful world. Now, spoiler alert, he concludes that Christianity is the religion, is the faith, is the way of life, the type of people in his terminology, the type of people who are living out a way of life that fits with a God who would create a beautiful world and a God who needs nothing but all things need him. Christians are the only ones that are living that type of life. How precisely does he distinguish between Jews and Christians? What is it about Christians that makes us live more beautiful lives? Where does he make that argument? So for the Jewish people, he admits that they do all sorts of good and wonderful things. So he admits that, he affirms that there's not an anti-Semitism that such as we see later, it's not there in Aristides. But he says, ultimately, because they have stopped with the law and not gone beyond the law to Jesus, he says that demonstrates that who they really are worshiping is not the God that I've described but the angels through whom the law came. So he lays out four types, makes the claim that Christians, the God of Christianity, best fits the description of the good and beautiful. Moving from there, what is the argument that he is making for the resulting good of Christianity, I'm guessing? Yeah, so what Aristides does from this point is he makes three key points. Now, this is me seeing these three key points. He doesn't enumerate them this way, but this is me seeing these three points as some of the things he does that are analogous and helpful to our situation in the 21st century. And the three key points he really makes that are important for our purposes is, first off, Christians can practice radical civic good without bowing to the civic gods. That's the first one. Second one that he really emphasizes is that in Christianity, there's a coherence between profession and practice. And the third one is that Christianity requires, it calls for a public practice of the truth. And those three things are significant and relevant for us today that Christians practice radical civic good without bowing to the civic gods. Christians have a coherence between their profession and their practice, and Christianity requires and calls for a public practice of the truth. Yeah, those three points make it really obvious why you've chosen to focus on Aristides, essentially because he was a good Dutch neo-Calvinist before Dutch neo-Calvinism ever existed. That point, going back to the comment and mention you made of Abraham Kuyper earlier, that that is one of those central tenets of the Dutch neo-Calvinist movement or culture or tradition is this practice of civic good in the culture without bowing, as you said, without bowing to the civic gods, right? Very much a biblical manifestation of being in the world and not of it, to use the Bible's own language. 
Yeah, and to us, that sounds normal in some ways, the idea of, of course, we can do that. We can do civic good without capitulating to any particular religion. It's hard for us to see how radical and how weird and strange that was in the second century Roman Empire. Because remember that for the Romans, religion was never a matter of your beliefs or your morals. In fact, if you go to the, the Romans, that for example, Cicero says at one point that if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, if you want somebody to tell you your fortune, basically you go to the civic religion. But if you want to know how to live your life morally and ethically, you go to philosophers. So in other words, for the Romans, philosophers and philosophy tells you how to do what's good. But religion was a matter of fulfilling certain obligations. So for the Romans, and it's important for us to get our mind in this mode, civic devotion was a matter of divination, supplication, sacrifice, and the goal of it was to secure the favor of the gods and to avoid the wrath of the gods. So you did the sacrifices, you did the prayers, again, kind of quote unquote on that because it's not prayers like we think of prayers, but you did all of that in the Roman temples, the pagan temples, because you were trying to get the favor of the gods and avoid the wrath of the gods. Now, here's what's important in that. To reject this, to avoid this, as Christians did, was to risk provoking the disfavor of the gods in such a way that the civic social order could be torn apart. And so when Christians refused to participate in the cults of the Roman gods, in the pagan temples, when they refused to do that, they were seen as people who were a threat to the cohesion and the stability of the social order. And it's hard for us to get our mind around that because, oh, they just didn't participate in that. No, but by not participating in that, they were seen to be a threat to the social order at any banquet. Let's give just a really simple example. This wasn't even just about going to the temples. This was if you were at a banquet there would be a god or goddess to whom there would be some sort of an acknowledgement given at a banquet. So you would take your cup of wine, or if you were Baptist, your cup of grape juice, you'd have taken your cup of wine and you'd have tipped a little drop on the table from that. And that was a sacrifice to a particular god or goddess. A Christian not doing that would be seen by the people at the table around them as somebody who is threatening the civic social order, that they were risking the provocation of wrath from the gods by not tipping their cup at that point. And so this is how Christians were perceived. Well, that helps us to understand why Aristides goes to such great lengths to make a point that Christians actually do more to strengthen the civic good and the social order than barbarians or Greeks or Jews. In fact, he says Christians do so much good for the social order. He says, to me, there is no doubt that the earth itself abides through the supplication of Christians, but it wasn't just the the supplications or prayers of Christians. It was the lives that Christians lived. And he goes through, he starts with things that would have been familiar to their day, even if they weren't abided by in their day. Christians do not adulterate or fornicate. They do not covet what is not theirs. They judge with justice. He lists those good things that Christians do. 
And then he goes on to talk about things that would have seemed ridiculous and absurd to Roman neighbors. Christians rescue orphans, Aristides says, from those who abuse them. They give without grudging to the one who has nothing. He says, whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one according to his ability pays attention and carefully sees to his burial. If any one of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of Christ, they provide his needs. He goes through things that in their world, caring for orphans, caring for the poor, caring for the prisoners was considered to be absurd. In fact, there's a writing called The Passing of Peregrinus, fascinating, weird, wild writing. It's the cynic philosopher Peregrinus who acts like he's a Christian and by doing so is accepted as part of the church and he acts like he's a Christian. He ends up in prison and a large part of this writing by this comedy writer, Lucian of Samosata in the second century is making fun of Christians because of the way that they care for this guy who is taking advantage of their gullibility by acting like he's He's a Christian and getting the benefits of their generosity in his poverty and in him being imprisoned. He's making fun of Christians. This is, let's just think, this is like the second century equivalent of a stand-up comedian. And his comedy routine is built around mocking Christians for their radical generosity and the things that are what we would consider to be civic good. So Aristides is in this context, and he's trying to make the case that Christians do civic good without bowing to the civic gods. They're doing so many good things for the social order, even if they don't bow to the civic gods. And that is just a brilliant move that he makes. But I think we should think about it today. Let's think about 21st century. There are liturgies that people are expected to participate in today that if you don't participate in them, these liturgies, then you are considered to be not good for the social order. Let somebody on a sports team not wear a particular pride patch. Let somebody not affirm somebody's preferred pronoun, to speak the liturgy, so to speak, or to refuse to participate in certain things. There are liturgies our culture expects, and you don't participate in those religious liturgies, quote unquote, and you will be considered to be not good for the social order. People have not ceased to be religious. They are still very religious. It is just a different religion. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. Podcast.